Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks for joining Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm super excited to be here with Dr. Sham, who's a scholar practitioner, professor of the Department of Philosophy at York Center for Asian Research at York University in Toronto. He's also the founder of yogaphilosophy.com, which I hope everyone who listens will go and visit after this conversation. So Dr. Sham, thanks so much for joining me and for uh, being open to this conversation. I'd love for you to introduce yourself, how you got started in this intersection of scholarly research and yoga practice so that everybody really knows where you come from, who you are, and what you bring to, the, to this, this deep discussion of yoga. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation. So, um, I mean, I think yoga, I didn't know this, I didn't appreciate this, but it was certainly part of my upbringing in the background uh, that I was raised in. Um, but it wasn't until I became a scholar that I started to really understand it and learn about uh, yoga. So um, if I was to, if I was to think about what kind of when it really became something that I was interested in. Um, I was doing, um, I was just kind of doing conventional philosophy education as an undergrad. And then um, I went on to an MA in philosophy and I started getting kind of frustrated. First, I loved philosophy because it was a way that you could get along with people without having to agree with them, which is amazing, right? And as a racialized Canadian who didn't fit in anywhere, like I didn't fit in my parents' uh background i didn't and everybody kept on asking me like when i came to canada <laughs> so i was born like i no, I, I didn't really fit in anyway philosophy was awesome but i started getting frustrated with um kind of the closed-mindedness of the conversations of the way people were interacting with, the, with each other the higher up you went and then i did an ma in south asian studies just to kind of broaden my uh, my learning. And so I, you know, I started learning about South Asian history and Sanskrit and a bunch of other things. And then um, it was actually then that I started to realize that there was this kind of major problem in the academy with respect to like how South Asian and BIPOC traditions on the whole are studied. So you'd have people who are trained in philosophy talking about white people philosophy, but the moment it became uh, brown people for black people or anything non-European, you had non-experts um, who didn't understand the discipline. And what they would do is they would just use their prejudices and their their beliefs about the way the world is as a as a filter for studying South Asia. A lot hasn't changed. It's still a lot like that in yoga studies. And but I, I got really interested in, you know, why is there this disparity and these weird myths in um in the academic world, when I when I started this work, was that South Asians had no tradition of thinking about practical questions of how to live and what to do. They were just interested in escape and liberation. They had no views on what we would call ethics or moral philosophy, which is just wrong and weird. Because, like, as a South Asian, I could tell you, South Asians are obsessed with questions of like what to do, how to treat people obsessed with questions about consumption, the ethics of consumption, right? Like, is it okay to just kind of go out and kill something and eat it? And under what circumstances? Like, these questions are just ancient. 
and and instead, like I found that scholars were just not scholars. That's almost too polite. Like they were, you know, just authors, academic authors. They would just they wouldn't talk about that, and they would just redescribe it as a tradition of mysticism and and um, and religion. And so then I I kind of started working on that, and then I did a PhD in philosophy. And I was I was interested in well, how do you understand a tradition that you're not from? Like, how do you how like let's say like like and there's so many of these traditions, right? There are people who are like two thousand years ago, they're gone, they're not with us, and we don't share like anything. How do we how do we go about understanding them? So it was it was normally um, uh, a PhD in translation and contemporary Western philosophy in the what's called the analytic and continental tradition, but while I was um, working on that, I decided to translate the Yoga Sutra as a kind of project. <laughs> it was a project to like, while I was thinking about, well, how would you go about translating anything successfully? I took on that project and the Yoga Sutra started teaching me solutions to the problem I was interested in. And so then I started thinking a little bit more kind of systematically about what was going on in the academy. And, and there's no point that I kind of just woke up and I go, oh, I'm a yoga practitioner. But as I started to learn more about yoga by just kind of going to the ancient sources and translating them myself, I started to appreciate the ways in which I had I was practicing yoga in many ways and the ways I was confused about that practice because I too had been colonized in many ways. And so then it, it was a slow process of taking off the layers of, of, of confusion. Um, but then one day I just remember waking up going, oh, this is what I do. I practice yoga <laughs> as taught by Patanjali. So that was, it was a slow, it was a slow entry, but what it, what it did allow me to do is look back on my upbringing. So I was raised in Toronto, but my family's from South India and pretty, pretty orthodox Sri Vaishnavas. And I was, I was able to look back on the ways in which I was learning about yoga and the ways in which colonialism kind of interfered. And then what was yoga was repackaged in ways that was palatable to to a western world but not actually the interesting part of yoga so that it was you know there were a lot of kind of moments where i started re-understanding my past but also thinking more critically about research and and, and knowledge going forward so that's unfortunately the kind of the <laughs> the long-winded answer of how i got it how i got into yoga well, this is an amazing journey, and there's so much in what you shared that I'd love for us to dive into. Perhaps we could dive into um, this uh, juxtaposition between what you described as the more interesting parts of yoga, um, sort of traditional practice that have been kind of washed out of the more um, sort of contemporary Western view of yoga. Would you be able to elaborate a little bit yeah. more and kind of provide some concrete examples of, of that for everyone? Yeah, sure. So, um, so the interesting thing about yoga, I learned, so this is kind of one of the things that I uncovered in my research is that if you think about ethical theories, ethical theories are all theories about good outcomes, the things you want, and then right choices and actions. And every ethical theory has some story to tell between about the relationship between the good and the right. And there are three famous ethical theories in the Western tradition, and all three are also in the South Asian tradition. If anybody watched The Good Place, you would have heard about these ethical theories like all the time. There's virtue ethics. According to virtue ethics, you have to be a good person in order to know what to do. So you're, you have to first have the right character, and then what you choose is the right thing to do if you're good. Then there's consequentialism, the idea that, well, there are these good things, and what you should do is try to get them, right? So the good thing, maybe it's happiness, maybe it's the lack of suffering that justifies uh, courses of action. Buddhism is a famous example of consequentialism in South Asia. The goal of Buddhists is to the eradication of suffering. And so Buddhist practice is geared towards that. Then there's deontology, which says there are lots of good things to do, but only some of them you have special reason to do, and those would be your duties. Uh, we find this, for instance, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita talks about, articulates this as karma yoga when he says that better to do your own dharma poorly than someone else's dharma well, right? So there's some things that are really your, the good thing you're supposed to do, and it's your obligation to work on it. So those are kind of familiar ethical theories. 
And what happens in a westernized world is these three ethical theories are in the background. People, even people who haven't been schooled, they've been raised with these options. And then when they, it's just part of the culture. And so then when they come to understand yoga, they try and make sense of it in terms of these options. So they think about yoga as maybe a way to bring about something, maybe a happy life or reduce suffering or to be, you know, it's what's involved in being, say, a good person. Or maybe they think about it in terms of like rule following, right? Um, the interesting thing about yoga is that it's a fourth ethical theory that we don't have in the Western tradition. And it says that you have to, that the right thing to do is to be devoted, this is kind of the most basic version of the right thing, is to be devoted to the ideal of right doing, which is Ishra. So Ishra is like the ideal of the right. And then you practice what it is to be Ishra. So Ishra's translations of Ishra could be the Lord or sovereignty, right? So the Ishra is the, the ideal of being free, of being sovereign or being lordly. And so as you practice yoga, it's a devotional practice to this ideal. And then you work on being that yourself. So then you have to practice the essential traits of Ishra, which are two further traits, which is being unconservative, challenging yourself, being free from your past, potentially calls that tapas in the Yoga Sutra. And then also owning your own choices uh, and, and self-governing. That's Swadhyaya in the Yoga Sutra. So if anybody knows the Yoga Sutra at the start of book two, there are three practices of yoga. One is devotion to Ishra. And then potentially spells out what that is. Well, that involves challenging yourself and owning your own choices. That's what it is to be devoted to Ishra. So that's what gets left out in a westernized world trying to understand yoga. It's not a theory that we find in the Western tradition. And it's kind of the original anti-colonial theory. Why? Because colonialism is about um, imposing on other people so they're not sovereign. Right. So they're not lonely. So they're not in charge of the life. And meanwhile, yoga is about prioritizing freedom and sovereignty. And, and then when you think about it, the way it was taught, it's an abstraction. It's not my selfishness or yours. It's the ideal of sovereignty. So as I work, as I'm devoted to this ideal, I'm also working on something that's going to be good for you. That's going to make space for other people to also work on their own freedom. And that's kind of very challenging um, in a westernized world because it, it doesn't buy, first of all, it doesn't buy colonialism as something we should put up with, but it also doesn't rely upon those other familiar theories. And those other familiar theories are problems. So for instance, when I think about all the scandals in the yoga world where people flock to someone who turns out to be um, less than perfect and wrong, like, in, you know, they make this these people were originally some kind of virtue ethics. They thought that this person was good and that's what they should, and that's why they should study with them, right? They were good and they will tell us what to do, right? But who else are you going to learn from? Uh, and then of course people get disappointed because no one's perfect and it's almost unfair to expect people to be <laughs> that good. So what happens is, and we see this in traditions where goodness is prioritized is people end up whatever gets denied, it finds some other way to come out, right? And so there's all, you know, all the stories of abuse amongst clergy, et cetera, like um, on a yoga now. So the problem is everybody's fussed about being good instead of working on doing the right thing, which is very different, right? So if you worry about doing the right thing, you're not giving up your freedom to an authority. It's part of your practice to be devoted to sovereignty. So then you have to work on it yourself you're not there. You're not looking for someone else to tell you what to do. So you're not going to put yourself in a position where you're giving all this power to someone who's not just not not what they're 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 uh, presented as, right? So yoga is just you know it's just so radically different. It's this individual practice that's about us being responsible as individuals. I think one of the maybe the hardest things to understand about that is the aspect of devotion. You know, the Western concept of devotion, we seem to only have, you know, devotion to God in a sense, but it's, yeah. it's in a very different sense. You know, it seems right. to be this like, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a different quality to this concept of devotion, you For know, sure. and, and when we, when, um, so how would you define devotion within the yoga? Yeah. So well, to be devoted, I mean, I use a musical analogy to flesh this out, right? Like, so let's say you want to learn how to play music. How are you going to do it? 
you have to first uh, you know, idealize the, the. You have to. You have to come to an understanding that there is such a thing as the ideal of music, and then be devoted to that ideal. And that's what it is to practice music, right? So you don't really understand what that ideal is yet, but you're committing yourself to it. And as you commit yourself to it, you start a practice of music. And at first, you're bad, but if you're committed, if you're devoted to that ideal, what it does is it transforms your performance and behavior over time because what you do is you take on the responsibility of that kind of self-scrutiny self-correction self-challenge and you improve and like the, the you know the really great musicians they never stop that devotional practice they never come to a point where they go oh, I've, I've a comp like I'm done there's nothing more to do and Ishra is, is the ideal of what it is to be a person and so in yoga then you know, the prop, the life well-lived well is one where we're devoted to that ideal ourselves. In in a kind of westernized world, we think about devotion relative to theism, and then God isn't right, it's good, right? God is all good, all-knowing, all-powerful, and, um, and then what God wants is what we should do. And so it all, it takes away the challenge in a way of us having to figure things out because all we have to do is just tell you know find find god but of course there's a huge problem if you're not good how would you know how would you know who's god how would you know who to listen to right it creates it creates more problems than it solves but i do think that one main problem that a lot of practitioners have is they've got this they have bad associations with that familiar idea of theism in a western world and then they come to yoga and then they get scared of Ishra Pranidhana, or devotion to Ishra. And then they look at all these ancient devotional practices and they get, they get spooked, <laughs> right? Um, but that's because they're trying to understand it. Not in, they're, not, they're not looking at the arguments. They're just trying to understand it in terms of what, what they're familiar with. So it is a challenge, right? We have to kind mm-hmm. of give up these familiar models and learn something. So where does asana fit into all of that in regards right. to practice? Because this yeah. is something that the West knows asanas, you know, right. but does the West know yoga? Yeah. Well, you know, the West is like, so I talk about, when I talk about the West, I'm careful to distinguish between the geography of the Western world, which actually includes indigenous peoples, right? They, they got colonized. And then a tradition I, I write with the capital W that leans on the East. The West, and this is a tradition that goes back to the ancient Greeks. And there's something peculiar about these people. They think that they had this idea of thought as what they, what as uh, sorry, yeah, thought and reason and speech. They had one word for all of these things. So they thought about thought as the kinds of things they would say. And so this creates a tradition where people try to understand everything in terms of what they would say. And it's very difficult to understand people who aren't part of this tradition because they don't say the same kinds of things. So when I think about the West, I think, well, if you're really kind of glued to that tradition, it's going to be very hard for you to learn anything new because you're always going to try and understand it in terms of what you would say, what you would assert or are willing to endorse. But, you know, as people who live in the geography of the West, it's our choice. We could decide to be yogis that is we could decide to be devoted to Ishra and then work on ourselves and that means then is that we have to challenge ourselves to get over our prejudices but also we have to work on not letting our kind of traumas interfere with learning right so just because I had a bad experience with something else doesn't mean I have to kind of let that get in the way of learning something new so we take that all on as our practice of as as yogis as genuine yogis and one of the things that you could do as a way to practice devotion to Ishra while kind of challenging yourself and owning your own choices is do something bodily, right? That's just one way that you can explore this practice. And that's where I think asana comes in. So, you know, I say to people, it's not that asana isn't yoga, but like, you know, everybody sits, doesn't mean they're doing all, everybody breathes, doesn't mean they're doing pranayama. So there's something that changes the behavior into a way to practice yoga. And then the question is, what is that? Well, it's that de- that devotional practice. And within the context of that devotional practice, everything, your your relationships with your friends, your family, your, your partner, your, 
your colleagues, uh, you know, everything just becomes part of that practice. And yeah, you should do something with your body. That's, <laughs> you know, so asana is a great way to, you know, challenge yourself and also own the choice of doing something on purpose. What are the you know, pitfalls of asana? So if sorry? asana, so if asana is a good way for us to connect in with the body, challenge ourselves, and learn about ourselves, what are some of the pitfalls about asana? Uh, well, I think it's just I think there's this there the so the in the Western this has to do with the Western tradition that because it comes with this idea that well uh, what I can think about is what I talk about <laughs> so then when we use the word yoga as a way to talk about asana, people think, oh, that's what yoga means. Yoga means asana, right? And so then all of a sudden you come into the world where yoga can have all sorts of different meanings. And you get all these really funny ideas like yoga's changed over time and lots of people have changed yoga. Well, there's yoga, the basic practice, and then there are all sorts of ways that you could practice that. So I distinguish capital Y yoga with like, the lowercase y yoga. So, you know, asana is like lowercase y yoga. The, the pitfall, if there is one, is when people think that that's the paradigm case of yoga. And then they get confused, right, as to what yoga has to say about anything else. Um, so I, I do a lot of philosophy on my Instagram page, and I will frequently get people very angry at me for suggesting that yoga is anything but like a good workout. <laughs> like they, they, that they're upset because that means they have to think about something they don't, they didn't want to think about. Um, so, you know, but that's not Asana's fault. That's their fault. I feel like, but there is a, there is something, um, you know, in the marketing of yoga instruction as primarily Asana instruction, right? And you could, you know, you could go to yoga teacher training course. And what are they going to teach you? It's basically asana with some, some other small things. Uh, and so I think there's a bigger problem with, you know, the marketing of yoga. Um, it's easier to sell people things that they want. And if they are not experts, what they want will probably be based on some confusion. <laughs> so it's just, it's just easier to, to sell that to them. Uh, it's harder to stand up and go, oh, you're all confused. <laughs> this is what's really going on. People don't want, you know, when they're thinking about what they're going to part money with, that's, they're going to run, they're going to feel offended or put off, or they're just going to want to go and spend money where they're giving them exactly what they want. And a lot of times what people want is yoga. And by what, by that, they mean asana. They don't want anything else. Right. So, you know, once again, it's not asana's fault, but we could see the ways in which all these, all these kind of trends conspire to create an environment where people are doing not doing yoga, but doing yeah. asana. <laughs> what can teachers in the yoga community do to kind of help combat this, you know, yeah. th this kind of trend of association where yoga is asana, period? What can right. teachers do um, to, to find that mix between getting people in the door and potentially offering them a window into a more broader view of what yoga is. Right. So I suggest that you just start off your practice with like a 30 second description of yoga as a devotional activity, right? So in yoga is devotion to the ideal, being a person, Ishra, you can translate that as sovereignty or Lord. And there are two parts to lordliness. There's not being stuck in your past and being free to move forward. And so in yoga, we practice not only devotion to that ideal, but we also practice challenging ourselves so we're not stuck in the past tapas. And we also practice swadhyaya, self-governance and owning our own values. And today, we're going to explore this ancient practice with some, you know, whatever, pranayama, asana, whatever, right? As long, all you need is like a little context in which the practice is then meaningful. You, it doesn't have to be a lot. But, you know, that means that you're starting off defining yoga as something other than just asana, right? So it can be done. It won't take long, but, you know, we'll see how many people put that into <laughs> Yeah, I think that's super helpful. Some mention yeah. of context, some mention of, you know, the philosophy behind it, some mention of yeah. the origin of yoga. 
you know, I've had people that have done teacher trainings that didn't learn anything other than asanas and other anything other than, you know, how to move the body. And they spent a lot of time on, you know, the technical safety of this movement or that movement, but there was no discussion even of the origin of where yoga came from. So I've talked to people that have graduated from a teacher training that didn't even know that yoga came from India that were just like, well, these are just some movements that I do right. in like, a, this is a, a different, this is a stretching fitness class that I've learned right. to teach. And I think that that's, that's, that's extremely unfortunate. And, you know, um, if any, and I would imagine that, that the best thing that could happen is that that person does another teacher training where they learn about, you know, the philosophy and, you know, my, my, my teacher, uh, Patabi Joyce always said asana is a good doorway, but that we shouldn't stop there. It's like lays a foundation to get people in the door, but that if you stop there, it becomes kind of like a dead end. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it is something that it often as people keep practicing, I mean, there's more than one way that they, they start to wake up to this. One thing I have noticed is that if people keep practicing, even if it's just asana, after a while, they'll want to ask, why am I doing this? Right. Why, why this instead of that? And all of a sudden, all these questions, they have answers. Um, but they do involve they do involve knowing something about the origins. They do involve knowing something about the history. Um, it isn't really good for our ego, right? Our ego wants to make everything about our experience, and ego is our enemy because it's when we understand ourselves in terms of ego, it's not a state of freedom. It's a state of all the things we've experienced. We've like we. It's the prison of our of our past of our of our way of relation relating to the things in our life that stop us from really exploring our own independence. And, you know, it's, you can get away with an ego-based life sometimes, but at, at some point um, it costs you. And if you're smart, you make the right choice, you'll start to learn as your way of, of dealing with, with that. If you're not smart or you make bad choices, you'll think that, you have to somehow dig in your heels and look at your own experiences or your own motivations as, as the answers. And, um, you know, so it can go, it can go both ways, but, uh, you know, certainly I think, I mean, I, it's neat that yoga is so popular. It's also weird that no one knows what it is. <laughs> like, I just feel like it's like simultaneously weird. Um, that's you know, a really like, interesting way of seeing it. You know, like it's yeah. awesome that it's so popular, but also really weird that no one knows what it is. I no that, one. Like, that and that kind of, that's an interesting juxtaposition, you know? And, and you could take it as either really, really hopeful and think, well, I hope all these people really do get to, you know, the deeper experience of yoga, or you could take it into a really kind of hopeless space of like, well, I guess, you know, <laughs> when um right. when they well, find out, I they may run away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I think I think that as people who are like any of us who are serious about our yoga practice, it falls on us to to uh, you know make some noise about this because um, if we just allow if we just allow the ignorance, what happens is that there's less and less space to practice. There's less and less space to actually do real yoga. And more and more of it is taken over by the silly stuff. So I do think that, you know, it does, uh, you know, those of us who, who who can teach, and so yoga teachers listening to this, really, I think it's our responsibility as teachers to our students to inform them. Because this, that's what teaching is, right? <laughs> so, it's not, so teaching is not giving people what they want. Teaching is informing. And they might not want to hear what you have, have to say, but that's still your job, right? Um, and, um, you know, I think the whole part of it is that the, the, the part of the problem is that the, yoga, the whole yoga teacher training thing is primarily a business and secondarily about education, right? Um, and so, you know, that's kind of part of the reality, but it is an opportunity. It is a really cool opportunity um, for people to, to start talking about these things because, you know, it's the actual philosophy of yoga is good for everyone. 
It's good for everyone to work on their independence. The world would be a better place if everybody was more independent. I'd love to dive into that intersection between yoga and the world, because you mentioned that sometimes you get some hateful comments on your Instagram when you post about different aspects of yoga philosophy and how it may intersect with um, our society. And I get the similar things, you know, people tell me stick to stretching, right? Yeah. Stick to yoga, you know? And um, what, like, would you give some context to the misunderstanding and the delusion about that? And then also in regards to um, the long, rich history of yoga and its interaction uh, with, uh, you know, society and culture and and ethics on that regard. Yeah. So as I said earlier, originally yoga was just a basic, like one of four basic ethical options. And if you understand that a lot of the ancient literature, like the Mahabharata, and Bhagavad Gita, a lot of these things start to make more sense in convention, uh, especially the Mahabharata, uh, which is a story about Krishna shows up. The Bhagavad Gita is a chapter in the Mahabharata, but it's a story about two sets of cousins. One one group, they're good, the Pandavas, but they're not they they're not perfect. They're good. They try to do the right thing, and then they have these evil cousins who are just like who are just angry and resentful. And the interesting thing about that story is that it's an exploration of what goes wrong when everybody's really worried about being good. So, you know, I talked about the kind of the three basic ethical theories we're familiar with. There's there's virtue ethics where we think that you have to be a good person in order to know what to do. And then there's consequentialism where there are these good ends and you're trying to work for them. And then there's deontology where there are these good things to do, but some of them are your duties. And these three ethical theories form what we could call a kind of conventional ethical framework where everybody's worried about being a good person, going after good things and doing good things, right? And one of the arguments in the Mahabharata is that if you're like this, you're going to get played by uh, moral parasites, people who aren't interested in being good, but want you to be good. So you'll be so concerned about being good that you won't do anything to stop evil immoral people, because that would just be, that would distract you from chasing after good things, being a good person, etc. So they were kind of really interested in the Mahabharata is one of the basic, one of the epics of South Asia. And there are lots of interesting discussions like that. They were really interested in these practical questions of like, well, how is it that we, we don't allow ourselves to be played by unscrupulous people? And yoga was an alternative because when you're devoted to Ishra, you're not, you're not, claiming to be good you're not trying to be good <laughs> you're not you're not trying to produce anything good you're not doing anything good you might be doing bad things you, you might just be like a start a beginner and really bad at everything you do but because you're concerned about this devotion to sovereignty Isha, what happens is you start to change your life and you ch- start to change the world around you so there's more room for you and other people and you know, that's where that's not the most ancient origin of yoga, but that's one kind of ancient uh, discussion about the importance of yoga, that if we really don't want to get played by people who are who just want us to be good so they could take advantage of us, we have to be committed to doing, being the kinds of people who are committed to doing the right thing. So one, one of the outcomes of that is that we might actually have to fight the good fight. So this is one of the interesting departures from like contemporary yoga where people want to say, oh, you know, unity and um, don't say anything that upsets people. Like they knew that sometimes you would have to take a stand on political issues because if you were always trying to be the nice guy, you would just, there would be less and less room for you because the other people are mean. They're just mean. (laughs) So what are you going to do in a world where they're just mean people? You have to take a stand sometimes. And this is even in the Yoga Sutra that, that that's, you know, in the discussion of the Yamas that there is there is opposition to the practice of yoga and you have to be, you have to step up and be that type of activist who disrupts the systemic harm you see in the world. So already in the ancient discussions of yoga, there's this political understanding of the importance of yoga. Yoga is about resetting the moral order, about making room for people to be independent. It's also about disrupting 
the systemic harm and discrimination in the world. It's just, it's there in the classical text. We don't have to make that up. So when people today say just stick to yoga, I was like, well, okay, well, I'll talk about the activism. <laughs> right? A lot of people don't know this, but Gandhi, uh, Gandhi Bait credits the Yoga Sutra for the source of his uh, political philosophy. And of course, Gandhi's a uh, model of direct action was uh, a model for Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And so a lot of what we think of as progressive activism actually goes back to the Yoga Sutra. So the very ancient stuff is totally upfront political, upfront about taking a stand. And then as a result of colonization, you see a slow retreat in discussions of yoga, even in South Asia, Right. So by the time the 1400s come around, South, South Asia is already the beginning of uh, Islamic colonialism starts about 1100 CE. And then in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, 1400 CE, you find discussions of yoga. And it says funny things like you should go to a country where justice is administered and then go practice in hiding where no one can see you because it's more powerful when no one sees you practicing yoga is so different from the ancient uh, philosophy of yoga, where it's something you did out in the open as a way to be an activist. And you can see then this kind of very slow creep over the centuries of colonialism culminating in British colonialism, where uh, South Asian philosophy, and this is, you know, also part of the story, uh, is basically erased. How is it erased? Well, the British decide to use the word Hindu, it's Persian, it's not Indian, to uh, as a label for all South Asian religions. So they didn't kind of, they weren't interested in the history of South Asian philosophy because that would have been a challenge to their, to their rule. So what they decided was that it was all one religion and, uh, you know, they were going to do something secular. So everything in the tradition that was anti-colonial and would have been able to address what was happening gets put in this religion category. And to this day, I see all sorts of deeply confused conversations about is yoga Hindu, blah, blah, blah. Hindu is just a word that the British used for the entire South Asian tradition. So yes. But if we're looking historically, we should ask the question of why are we talking about that? Why aren't we just looking at the arguments and the reasons that were provided by these ancient thinkers, right? And I think part of it is people internalize colonialism, right? They want to maintain the narrative of the Western world as providing the practical solutions for life. And then yoga becomes like a fun pastime, right? It's something you can you can put in your day. I did yoga at two o'clock, right? And then you go on with the rest of your life. And, and then what could have been a source of political reflection for challenging systemic harm that we experience is treated as it's just scrubbed completely scrubbed from people's awareness and you're not going to learn laws you you meant you're not going to learn it at your average ytt right you go learn yoga you're not going to learn about this and you know the sad truth is that most people even when they teach I mean, most academics are clueless too. I mean, my work, the reason why I started my work, I was like, why is there this weird story being told about South Asians? You know, like they just were uninterested in practical questions. Well, I'll tell you, because it's convenient for colonialism, right? So if you can depict all these people as clueless on how to live life, you can just come and say, we'll do you a favor. We'll tell you how to live life. But the weird thing, of course, is that this is echoed in the academic literature where people aren't interested in moral political philosophy from South Asia. They just want to talk about religion and spirituality, which are all inventions of the Western tradition, right? It's the Romans we get the idea of religio from. Um, And so anyways, there's just, it's colonization. It's all over the place. And so... I totally understand why these people are freaking out when you say anything that doesn't fit with their narrow view of yoga, because what you're doing is you're challenging, you're not intentionally doing it, but you're showing them that there's an alternative. Um, But when you're in a state of colonization, there's no choice, right? There's just one story. And so 
the Yoga Sutra actually talks about this when we when we live in case in under a vidya ignorance, which is the imposition of some perspective, we then kind of get stuck in a world of our own ego where we understand everything as you know in accordance or in opposition to our perspective, and that's klesha affliction, book two, sutra three. And so when I look at these people getting upset, they're already traumatized. They're already in a state of klesha where they are they have convinced themselves there are no real choices or discussions to be had about politics and ethics. And uh and and the way they make themselves feel okay about that is by these exercises that relieve stress or something, right? So <laughs> instead of actually dealing with the problems of their life, they just want to they just want to do something that makes their body feel less bothered. It's interesting because I feel like you really hit something about the idea of being challenged in our notion of what is right. So oftentimes we think of, you know, okay, well, the people who are going to say you should just, you know, shut up and do asanas or stick to stretching or whatnot, we we may immediately pigeonhole them into one side of the political spectrum. But I really like how you described this concept of affliction as being set in the ways of what that worldview is. And then, then that starts to include kind of extremism on whichever political spectrum one may find themselves. So it's not necessarily only to pigeonhole, okay, well, you're on this side of the political spectrum. And then, and then, you know, you tell people to just shut up and do yoga. And then then the other side of the political spectrum may then start to come in and say, well, that's not yoga. This is what yoga is, or (laughs) shut up and only say this and don't, don't do asanas only do this. And then, and then it's this rigidity around our trauma, this rigidity around rightness that, that then ends up getting back into these sort of, you know, moral, you know, certitudes of this is the right way. This is the wrong way. This is good. This is bad. And then we're outside of this concept of of sovereignty and devotion and, and, and just perpetuating maybe mindless delusion and perpetuating, you know, our own avidya, our own ignorance. And so it's, um, it's, it's a really, it's a fine line to walk, you know, and I really, I really connect with this idea of, uh, that you mentioned that the teacher, the yogi, the voice of the yogi is not necessarily someone who will give you what you like, you yeah. know, and that's something that, again, it's like, okay, well, if you're encouraging someone to think, if you're encouraging someone to break their box, right. then that may be really upsetting for that person, right? regardless of where they, it's not, it's not, it's not, okay, well, we're all, the yogi's only going to upset people on this side of the political spectrum. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. It's challenging the box that's upsetting. Yeah, it's challenging for sure. the ego that's upsetting. But but what's going on with the people who are stuck is they're conservative. So that, that I think is pretty clear from the yoga tradition that conservative. So there's like modern ways that people understand conservatism. I mean, conservative just as in you're keeping to the same thing all the time. Right. Conservative in that sense. So there is. And when you look at what's involved in challenging that and then seeing that we all share an interest in Ishra. That allows us to understand people as diverse, right? So I do think that there is, so if I had to use political categories of the contemporary world, yoga kind of uncomfortably is a bit on the left, but it's not left in the way that um, people in the European tradition think about it. It's more radical because it's not about your community. It's not about even necessarily just humans, it's about people, right? So this is another weird thing that comes from the Western tradition because it conceives of thought as what you can say in human speech. It begins with understanding what it is to be a person in terms of just what it is to be human. When you go back to the South Asian tradition, no one thought that. And yoga from the very start was a way to understand what it is to be a person which is different from prakriti or nature. So my nature might be male and human, but my interest as in a person is my interest in being unconservative and self-governing. So squirrels are people, dogs are people, right? The earth, she's a person. That is, people are the kinds of things that thrive when they have this freedom to challenge themselves and to own their own choices. So that I think is very upsetting to the Western world, because the Western world really wants to maintain 
the priority of humans and then their community. Not just humans, but humans in my community are kind of the most important in that. And then I don't really owe anything to humans outside of my community, right? So ethical questions are just about what I do with my neighbor. They're not about how are my choices impacting people on the other side of the earth. I don't have to think about that. They're not, they're not part of my community. So I think going deeply into yoga is very challenging. But I mean, it's also just you know, if you're freaked out about it, think about it this way, or at least this is what I would say, that if you think that your interest just has to do with being human or male or whatever, you're going to miss out on what's really important. And what's really important isn't the genetic makeup of whether you're human or male, but your your freedom to determine your own life, right? And that's something that's good for people and it's not just for if you think that it's just for folks that look like you or sound like you you've misunderstood what's so useful about that freedom. the freedom is that i can actually maybe be free of the ways other people see me or expect me to be maybe i have that right to determine right how i'm treated by other people and then you know, maybe that means that I can change how I'm perceived. Like maybe that's part of it too. And of course, in, you know, in our world, people get freaked out about things like that. Um, you know, that's where a lot of the conversation about say trans folks are now, but yoga shows us why people who freak out about that are confused because what's important for a person isn't things like sex or gender. It's this freedom to be in charge of your own life, right? And that's just good for people on the whole, not just for like straight people who look like you or something like that. So yoga then is very, um, like when you go the full mile and you think about the original arguments and theories, it shakes things up, but it's also just good for people. So I think ultimately, like after people start stop freaking out, they'll go, oh, I'm included too right? It's not danger. I'm, I'm protected. I'm included too. I don't have to give up anything. Um, I really connect with that a lot. And I, I'd love to, I'd love for you to just repeat, is it possible, your definition of conservative? Because I think yeah, that this is something. Stuck with yeah. like how things were, right? So to conserve. So conservative is someone who conserves. So you know, can, conservative things that think that the way we used to do things is a good idea. And then and they think that can people right make choices. a new conservatism? Sorry? You know, do you think people can make like a new conservatism? So sure. sometimes what I feel like happens is we get stuck in a way that things were, and then we get stuck in a way that so, somehow we've got a new stuckness that comes sure. in. People make up a past. Right. Like, so for instance, the Hindu right in South Asia, they're described as conservatives, right? And they're like Islamophobic and xenophobic, and they have this story of what it is to be Hindu. Uh, but that's all a colonial invention. So they're they're conservative, they're holding on to something, but it's actually not a really traditional indigenous ancient um, part of their ancestry. It's just it's actually pretty recent. But then they hold on to that, uh, you know, like in the states, white supremacy. It's not that old, right? Like a lot of scholars point out that race is really created around, um, you know, there's a time that race becomes important. It becomes important in European history when the slave trade starts up and then slaves are no longer. So before that, European slaves were mostly Europeans, right? But then when the slave trade starts, it's, it's like it's color-coded. The Europeans are no longer the slaves, but, you know, black, brown folks, they're the slaves. And then race is created as a way to justify this political arrangement. It's not that old. It's a few hundred years old, right? But, you know, conservatives can be racist. <laughs> they can really be stuck with that, that thing, right? Or you could join a cult that's just started yesterday and get really stuck on, on whatever it is that they're peddling, for sure. I really like this, I, this, this notion of conservatism as stuck <laughs> and then, you know, if we look at stuckness, this is one of the obstacles that Patanjali right. talks about it. So it's like stuckness, you know, this this idea that we get stuck 
and that that's an obstacle to our liberation. And then we can get stuck in any thought form, whether it's sort of, you know, like you said, a new cult that's invented or some some new thought that we just start thinking and we just get stuck in that thought. It's just very, and, and this is very challenging to, um, the more um, uh, sort of conventional forms of of, um, of morality, because so many people, I feel, just want to be told what to do. Yeah. And there's this idea of, I just want to be good. Tell me what to do and I'll just right. do it. What's good? And I find this a lot happens in yoga. People ask me all the time questions like, what's the right way to do, you know, trikonasana? And then I just want to do that way. And then they get stuck with that. So they become, right. in your definition, conservative around that. And then they see yeah, someone else sure. doing triangle pose in a different way. And it's very upsetting. Yeah. You know? and it's like, okay. <laughs> so pe- people get scared of their freedom, which is their responsibility. And they're scared of that. So they just want someone else to make those decisions. And why are they scared of that? Probably because they think that if they make the wrong choice, they're bad or something like that. But, you know, yoga, yoga solves this problem because when we're devotion, when we're practicing our devotion, we're not assessing ourselves in terms of how good we are at what we're doing. In fact, we're just not supposed to pay attention to that. We're just supposed to commit to that, commit to the practice. And then the improvement happens because we're not defining ourselves in terms of those failures. We're allowing ourselves to grow and change, right? So when you really embrace your responsibility, it's totally, you have, and this was one of the things that I didn't, I didn't appreciate growing up. And this is, I think, the ways, one of the ways in which I just didn't understand yoga because I learned about it like everybody else within a colonial context. Like when you understand what yoga really is, it takes this, t- this weight off your shoulders because otherwise you're always trying to assess yourself in terms of your success. Um, and we're all failures by some, some grade, right? Um, and, you know, if that's the way you have to understand yourself, there's no point to anything, right? And so it's easy to get depressed, so easy to get anxious and worried. But when I I give up that way of understanding myself as a devotee, that's so important to my devotional practice. And then all of a sudden, there's room for me to grow and change. Um, and I don't have to defend my past mistakes. They were bad. <laughs> but but I'll, at the same time, they don't define who I am, right? Like, so I'm not, you know... I don't have any, I don't have any strong sense of guilt. I just was like, yeah, that was stupid. That was bad. Like it's easier for me to just look at my past errors as things that I, I choose not to do anymore. I I really feel the liberation in that. And I think it's something that um, so many people could take that lesson and apply it directly to how they interact with their comment feed on social media. <laughs> you know, if, uh, if that's the attitude of, you know, you don't need to be, you know, I don't need to carry this baggage of guilt and shame yeah. for the mistakes I've made. Look, I made the mistake. It was dumb. I learned from yeah, it. I'm right. not doing it again. You yeah. don't need to I don't this. recommend it to anybody. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and and then this idea of constantly judging yourself by, you know, whether or not someone rates you as good and doing something to get like the good approval by this, you know, comment thread or this community that's online. And 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 this idea of freedom connected with responsibility. You know, um, maybe maybe that's the last thing that we could that we could talk about is this kind of intersection of freedom and responsibility, because you know, if we take a look at like the last book of, of Patanjali, this notion of Kaivalya or, you know, Kaivalya Mukti and how it intersects with moksha and liberation and this idea of being, you know, finally freed of all of our delusions right. and then the responsibility that comes with that. So how do you see that as sort yeah. of manifesting in the world? Well, uh, in the Kaivalya Pada, in the fourth book, Kaivalya, freedom, comes after the Dharma Mega Samadhi. Dharma Mega Samadhi is the ethical cleansing where we get rid of selfishness in every contact. So when we no longer have to understand ourselves by our ego in our life, then we're autonomous. But then what that means then is that our life is no longer explained by the outside, which is nature. It's all choice and responsibility. So my autonomy is my my responsibility. And so it's not the same as necessarily everything being perfect, but it's also a state in which there's nothing stopping you from making a correction, right? There's nothing, because you you have now, I mean, when, when, when we live 
unfree lives, we abdicate our responsibility to change things, right? And so then they just, they, they fester. That's a way they're stuck. We perceive them as external to us. Meanwhile, it's because we've decided that that part of our life is something that like, I can't, you know, is not my fault or I don't have it. I don't have any influence on it, et cetera. So the kind of the radicalness of yoga is to like, to know like your life is an outcome of your choices. And that doesn't mean that everything is up to you, but you are, you certainly have something to contribute to it. Right. So if you understand that you have something to contribute to it, then you can think about the ways in which your activity could be changed to make more room for you. Right. But what, what are you someone who's responsible for your life? And so um, I don't know. It's right there. It's just there in the words. But what I do see is people decide they'll ignore the like the discussion of Dharma Mega Samadhi and they'll just jump to Kaivalya. <laughs> they'll just kind of pick and choose. It's very common. And I find myself just kind of going, just look what it says. It says that there's this ethical cleansing and then and then you're free, right? And but what does that mean? And me, and then you have to, it's it's more work than. You know, a lot of people want an escape. And what they're missing out is, is actually free life, right? They want to escape from their problems. But I guess yoga, the kind of what's neat about yoga is that teaches us that, well, if we can um, take responsibility for ourselves, then we don't have to be stuck with our problems, right? That the problems we have are in large part because we've decided it's just nothing that we we have any influence over. Um, so, you know, when you are practicing, yeah, I guess I just repeat, it doesn't mean everything's perfect, but you are living a life where you're not deprived of your own sense of agency and your own responsibility for your life. And that that's a life that's always going to be meaningful for you, right? It'll always be the life that you will choose to live because it's you working on being you with other people i think that's a wonderful definition of, of of liberation and includes this aspect of responsibility and and sort of self-determination agency and sovereignty which you know if people are following that path it's a it it, it requires a lot you know it asks yeah, a lot you know for sure yeah. but also like I, when i teach my students i say the weird thing is that like when you start to understand what yoga is it's just basically or like you just living your life right like <laughs> It becomes so simple. It's not like all of a sudden you live in a palace where you don't know anything. It's like, no, you're still with the same people. They're still your family. They're still your friend. They're still, and But now you are more engaged in being responsible in your interactions with them, in your choices in life, in, in what you're doing. And so then things in a way simplify um, because it's always the same challenge. It's the challenge of you just can being responsible wherever you are. I think this is a great note for people to take away and to reflect on a great note for us to end on. So I just want to thank you again for your time. And maybe you could let people know if you have um, any recommendations of where they can connect with you. Um, so if you'd like to share that now, I think everybody would be really inspired to keep the conversation going. Fantastic. Thanks. So uh, I post frequently uh, on my IG account. Uh, so you can first go to yogaphilosophy.com online to my website, and then you can click the IG link. It's at yogaphilosophy underscore com is my IG, but please do check out also the website. I offer courses on yoga philosophy, a 100-hour certification, and uh, Sanskrit for yogis and various other, other things that might be of use. Nice. I really encourage everyone to check it out. And again, thank you so much for joining. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kino. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. 
So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.